I'm Barry Weiss, and this is Honestly. A little over a year ago, the New York Times dropped a bombshell headline. Maybe you remember it. The discovery is astounding, and so too the anguish, leaving community members and much of Canada reeling. The remains of 215 children, some as young as three, buried for decades on the grounds of the Kamloops Indian Residential School. Horrible history. Mass grave of Indigenous children reported in Canada. The Indigenous community in British Columbia calls it an unthinkable discovery, and yet former students... And as other outlets picked up this shocking story... A pair of shoes for each child who was sent to school and never returned. Some as young as three. Their bodies discovered buried at an Indian residential school in Canada. Rumours circled for decades at Kamloops, once the largest... It set off a chain reaction in Canada. They are fuelled by an anger that has inflamed generations. Downing statues of the Queen and those who went before her. There were protests. There were mass marches. Riots. Churches were burned to the ground. Meanwhile, a physical confrontation erupted outside an Edmonton Catholic church yesterday. It was a dramatic start to a Sunday morning service at the Our Lady Queen of Poland Parish. Parishioners blocking an Indigenous group from entering. Both groups getting physical, struggling back and forth. The parishioners eventually pushing back hard enough and locking the doors. One Canadian minister called it Canada's George Floyd moment. Those people assaulted me on my land when I'm defending the children. But according to my guest today... That bombshell story. The remains of 215 children. 215 children. Some as young as three. Some as young as three. Some as young as three years old. Actually wasn't true. And saying that, writing it, reporting it, it came at a very high personal cost. Canadian journalist Terry Glavin has been a reporter for over 20 years. And in that time, he's had a particular focus on persecuted minorities, both in faraway places like China with the Uyghurs, Afghanistan, Iraq with the Yazidis, Russia, and more, but also in his own backyard. Terry has reported extensively on the First Nations of Canada and the horrible abuses they have suffered at the hands of the Canadian government. So how is it that he a journalist who spent his entire career giving voice to the most vulnerable and oppressed members of society, is now being called a denier of genocide by prominent academics and institutions. If you've been following along for a while, you'll know that I talk a lot about the dangerous trends I see happening in journalism today. Putting activism over objectivity, putting ideological narratives over facts, over reality. Well, today's story is about that, but it's about so much more. It's about what happens to a democracy when the truth no longer matters. We'll be right back. (laughs) 
Listeners of Honestly have probably heard me talk about Sapir, a quarterly journal edited by my friend and former colleague Brett Stevens, and for good reason. Sapir is home to thoughtful, heterodox analysis on topics we care a lot about on this show, foreign policy, domestic policy, education, the Middle East, and much more. With Israel at war and rising anti-Semitism in the West, including at our most elite universities, Sapir is more important than ever. Its current issue, called Friends and Foes, takes a deep, hard look at the people and principles that we can count on to counteract dangerous cultural and political trends near and far, and those that we can't. I recommend Danielle Haas's article on the human rights establishment. Haas was a senior editor at Human Rights Watch for over a decade, and she offers an intimate inside view of how human rights NGOs have lost their way and how far they have strayed from their founding missions. Check that essay out, along with the rest of Sapir's current friends and foes issue at sapirjournal.org slash honestly. That's S-A-P-I-R journal.org forward slash honestly. Terry, welcome to Honestly. It's nice to be here, Barry. Very nice to be here. So many of our listeners are American and don't know much about the First Nations, the indigenous tribes of Canada. You know, they're probably familiar with the story of Native Americans here in the U.S., right? How they were wiped out overwhelmingly by disease when the Europeans arrived here in the 16th century, how those that survived were displaced by force onto reservations that still exist until this day. So if you would, I know it's a very complicated story, but in broad strokes, could you tell me that story and how similar or different it is to what happened here in what would become the U.S.? Yeah, that's actually a really interesting story. There are vast differences, of course. One of the things that I've always found objectionable, the idea of the Indian, when we're looking at so many different cultures and languages. Uh, in Canada, we have 11 major linguistic families, dozens and dozens and dozens of distinct languages. There are 600 registered, recognized Indian bands, as they're known in Canada. There is a fundamental difference, and I hate to talk about this to an American audience because sometimes it sounds like I'm bragging or looking down my nose at the Yanks, which is too much of a habit that Canadians <laughs> take on. But the story in Canada is actually quite radically different. In the American experience, particularly in the West, there were what you might, I think, not unreasonably describe as wars of extermination. In the Canadian case, it was really a kind of a, the westward movement of colonization or settlement was, was really a joint project between the Métis, Indigenous, uh, French, Scots, English. And there were not the kinds of wars that you saw in the United States. What you saw in Canada, there was the Red River Rebellion, there was the Northwest Rebellion, these were Métis uprisings. And the Métis people are interesting because they're a distinct culture that descends from both French and largely Plains Cree people. They're, they are a unique people in their own right. And you get to a place like British Columbia where one-third of all the, the Indian bands in Canada are actually in British Columbia. And the cultural diversity and the differences of all of these people is really quite astonishing you know, Prince George, for instance, is a city in the middle of British Columbia. And you can drive from Vancouver, which is on the lower west coast of British Columbia, to Prince George, and you'll 
traverse more language boundaries than driving from Moscow to Madrid. It's really astonishing, and it's, it's wonderful. And anybody who's sort of curious about the history of this place will soon discover that the experiences of colonialism and settlement in Canada, it's, it's very difficult to tell as a single story because so many First Nations had so many different sorts of experiences. Well, let's talk a little bit about the Canadian government's concerted effort to assimilate First Nations into Canadian culture. As I understand it, one of the key tools for this assimilation effort was this network of compulsory residential schools, really boarding schools, that started in the late 1800s. And basically, tens of thousands of Indigenous children were taken from their families and sent to these schools, which were mostly administered by the Roman Catholic Church. You co-authored a book with a graduate of one of these schools, and I wondered if you could tell us a bit about what these schools were like. Well, I think, similarly, it's kind of difficult to put in a single story. I think your description is quite accurate. I've characterized the federal policy as cultural genocide. Uh, Roughly 150,000 over the years, uh, Indigenous students went through these institutions, many of which were ghastly places, and the stories of abuse and sexual abuse and malnutrition and sky-high rates of uh, mortality from diseases like Spanish influenza. It's not a happy story, that's for sure. But it's also complicated because the religious orders were here ministering to indigenous peoples before the federal government came along and it sort of entered the picture. And then the federal government took over the schools with a distinct policy of assimilation is the kindest way to put it. And most of the, the the really bad stuff, I should say, as far as compulsion and turning indigenous people into well-behaved little white people, started in the 1920s. When did the Canadian public become aware that indigenous children, you're, you're saying 150,000 of them, had been suffering these abuses, like sexual abuse, rapes, corporal punishment, inadequate food, poor medical care, that they were dying at a higher rate than the national average. When did the public reckoning begin? I'd say in our generation, it was definitely the late 1990s. Most of that was just media coverage, you know, increasing pressure on the federal government and the churches to sort of come clean on what had happened. In the first decade of uh, this century, there was the Indian Residential Schools Settlement Agreement, massive class action lawsuit against all of the churches that were involved and the federal government or the religious institutions uh, involved and the federal government. Ultimately, I think the it ended up paying out, I believe, $5 billion to the people who were still alive, who had attended residential schools. And one of the outcomes of that settlement agreement was a Truth and Reconciliation Commission. So you had several years of public hearings, testimony, a lot of public attention to the residential schools issue until 2015, when the commission released its voluminous reports. And uh, among those recommendations which included the understanding of residential schools as cultural genocide. There were four recommendations that dealt with the issue that has come up lately, 
Um, uh, and that was the, the issue of the deaths in the schools. Lots of kids, that nobody knows where they were buried. There were about 3,200 children identified by the Truth and Reconciliation Commission who had died after being enrolled in the residential schools and their whereabouts was unknown. So among the recommendations was that research be done to find out where these kids were buried and to return them to their home communities if that were possible. Well, Terry, I wonder how that experience changed Canadian culture. What was the impact sort of in the aftermath of, first of all, this unbelievably large class action settlement, I think the biggest in Canadian history, but also the Truth and Reconciliation Commission? Like what happened in the aftermath of both of those things? In the aftermath of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, uh, there was a lot of debate, uh, public debate, about whether or not cultural genocide was, was, was a proper term to use, and a lot of comparisons were made to genocides elsewhere. It was interesting because the recommendations of the Truth and Reconciliation came out just as the Trudeau government was taking office. And I think this is where the sort of rubber starts to hit the road, because it, what, what Justin Trudeau said and shocked everybody was that he was going to accept all recommendations uh, or calls to action that came out of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. And I don't know that, that anybody quite expected the federal government to do that. But there's been a lot of debate since then about whether or not the federal government has indeed lived up to its obligations under those calls to action. So let's fast forward, if we can, to May 2021. So in that month, the New York Times comes out with a very dramatic headline about this subject, about the First Nations in Canada. Here's the headline. Horrible history. Mass grave of Indigenous children reported in Canada. Tell us about that story. What did it claim? Yeah, that was May 28th, 2021. That was kind of like... If you can imagine the New York Times coming out with a headline, you know, UFOs are real. Hmm. Um, because, you know, mass grave, my God. Part of it was because there had been this crazy conspiracy theory, kind of a precursor to QAnon. There was a defrocked United Church priest who'd been going around and he was chased out of pretty well every single Indian reserve in Canada making claims of a kind of an archipelago of secret mass graves at residential schools and cover-ups and pedophile rings. and So sort of like the Canadian Pizzagate or something like that? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it was really ridiculous. And, and I played some role in kind of outing the guy, and Indigenous journalists did as well, as being a total crank and a crackpot and was just abusing, you know, very, very, very vulnerable and wounded Indigenous people in this crazy story. And so the New York Times comes out with, you know, mass grave discovered. And it was like, oh, I, Sasquatch is real. UFOs are real. <laughs> um, it was like a blunt trauma wound to the head. There were protests. There were riots. There were marches. The federal government, the Crown Indigenous Relations Minister, Carolyn Bennett, said this is our, our George Floyd moment. The flag was lowered on Parliament Hill and all flags were lowered on all federal buildings across the country. And I don't want to blame the New York Times exactly because 
there were other newspapers and media in those first two or three days that did the same. But that was that was that was the shot heard heard around the world. That's where the tone of everything that was to come was set, and it wasn't true. So, after the initial time story, there was like this cascade of follow-ups published in outlets like the BBC, the Guardian, the Washington Post, and basically they purported to reveal discoveries, ultimately adding up to something like thirteen hundred child graves at these sites across Canada. Many of these stories, and I went back to read a lot of them, included horrific details. And as more and more of these articles came out, the temperature just seemed to rise and rise. You know, I remember reading headlines at the time of violence erupting across Canada, which, you know, it's a compliment to you guys. I don't think of violence as something that erupts across Canada. You know, churches were desecrated and burned down. Statues were toppled. It looked a lot like America. You know, we're not used to seeing this kind of social unrest in your country. So why do you think it happened this way? Well, I don't mean to be too cynical, but it is kind of the way the federal government wanted it to happen. They, You know, it was like, okay, this is our George Floyd moment. And the prime minister saying that when all of those churches were being burned, well, it's understandable a lot of the focus, in fact, all of the focus was being directed against uh, the Catholic Church. Uh, but interestingly, other churches were being burned down too. Uh, I mean, some of these events were just heartbreaking. Um, you know, ancient churches, wooden churches that indigenous people had built and where they celebrated the baptism of their kids and got married in them and had funerals in them, going back generations, were torched, also in the cities and towns. And it wasn't just, you know, aimed at the Catholic Church. It was aimed at Catholics. And, you know, you get this little Filipino church in East Vancouver that celebrates Mass in Tagalog, and it was desecrated. You had a Vietnamese church that was, uh, there was an arson attack, I think, there. It was just, it was mayhem. Who was carrying out these attacks? That's, nobody seems to know. I mean, (laughs) in some cases, they were definitely indigenous events. Like in Winnipeg, a statue of Queen Victoria was pulled over and desecrated and everything like that. Uh, In Victoria, it was mainly, you know, the sort of extinction rebellion, basically white kids knocked over a statue of Captain Cook and threw his head into a harbor. And uh, so, yeah, it was, um, it was absolutely nuts. It was crazy. Terry, you're, you blame the government in part. You're saying, not to be too cynical, but the government kind of wanted this. Why would the Canadian government want a George Floyd moment? Why would they want a George Floyd moment? It was on the anniversary of the George Floyd mayhem in the United States, all the civil disturbances there. That's when the New York Times headline came out. That weekend, you know, for the preceding days, there'd been a lot of retrospectives. And in the United States, There were a lot of commemorations and marches and a lot of reflections on the meaning of the George Floyd event. And it's just the way this government kind of rolls. I I don't mean to be so cynical, but somebody put it to me the the other day, you know, if you can imagine a a social media marketing campaign in charge of a G7 country. And it's very American-inflected. It's very interesting. Like during the Roe versus Wade leak, Trudeau held a press conference. First of all, 
the freedom of a woman to choose belongs to her and her alone. In Canada, every woman has a right to a safe and legal abortion. And this government will never back down on defending and promoting women's rights in Canada and around the world. You know, this is really terrible and American women can come to Canada and will behave, will behave like a blue state and they can get abortions if they like. That terrible massacre in Uvalde, Texas. We're introducing legislation to implement a national freeze on handgun ownership. What this means is that it will no longer be possible to buy, sell, transfer or import handguns anywhere in Canada. In other words, we're capping the market for handguns. Basically, handguns were already kind of banned in Canada, but uh, Trudeau said he was going to tighten up even further handgun legislation and made a big deal out of the uh, Uvalde massacre as kind of a justification for the Liberal government's antipathy to firearms. Another instance is uh, Emancipation Day, August 1st, which is the celebration of uh, and the commemoration and the reflection on the elimination of slavery in the British Empire. In a statement, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau expressed his continuing sorrow. The legacy of systemic anti-black racism is still embedded throughout our society, including in our institutions. Canada had no slavery. We were born in 1867. Uh, we used to be understood as a kind of a, the terminus on the Underground Railroad. But uh, Trudeau turned that into a reflection on systemic anti-black racism in Canada. And this gets a little bit galling for a lot of people because the Americans and the British and the Australians have anti-slavery legislation. The Americans and the British and the Australians have done quite a bit to actually try to prevent uh, slave goods from places like Xinjiang, particularly entering North American and Western markets. Canada hasn't. We've done nothing. You know, we have a bad reputation for basically being a dumping ground for slave goods. And there's a lot of reasons why we should be talking about slavery. And that's not what Trudeau wanted to talk about. He wanted to, he wanted to talk about systemic anti-black racism. I mean, that's an interesting conversation to be had. But it seems to me it's an odd day for Canadians to have that discussion. Well, speaking of kind of the pageantry of it all, like the photo ops uh, that Trudeau sort of set up for himself, I could not get over what happened when Pope Francis recently came to Canada. It is a pilgrimage of penance. On a rare overseas trip, an aging pontiff hoping to right a historic wrong. Thousands of indigenous people in Canada gathered on these sacred grounds. Many emotional, waiting for an apology more than 100 years in the making. Pido perdón humildemente por el mal que tantos cristianos cometieron contra los pueblos indígenas. Pope Francis pleading for forgiveness on the very soil where decades of harm unfolded in Canada's residential school system. Most of those schools operated by the Catholic And there were these incredible images of him in a headdress. And he was summoned to Canada to kind of apologize for the church's involvement in these schools. La iglesia se arrodilla ante Dios y le implora perdón. What did you think of that spectacle? Well, it was a spectacle. 
Well, I think if we just roll back a little bit, we should remember that, you know, this kind of rolled out all summer and into the fall, you know, and, and ended up with 1,300 alleged, uh, you know, the discovery of 1,300 burials and babies or in children at residential schools. And so there was this fever pitch. And uh, immediately Trudeau was demanding that the Pope come to Canada. And in, in the way I look at it, it was almost like we had this national psychotic episode and um, the, the prime minister decided that it was a kind of demonic possession and summoned the Pope to come and conduct a kind of a national exorcism. And uh, so he came and he said all the right things and, you know, uttered all the right incantations. And, and, I, and I don't want to dismiss this because I think for a lot of indigenous Catholics, particularly, this is really important to them. It's really important to them. And I, you know, uh, it was really quite traumatic, I think, for a lot of people. And so, all, you know, it was like, okay, let's blame the church. Let's get the Pope here. We'll, you know, we'll, we'll say saucy things about the Pope. And uh, Pope came, and he celebrated Mass in Edmonton, and he went to Lac Saint Anne, which is a really important Indigenous uh, pilgrimage site. And he went to Quebec, and uh, he said everything people were demanding that he say. Well, Terry, from the very beginning when that New York Times story broke, you were skeptical about the whole thing. What made you skeptical? The, the main thing that made me skeptical was that the reporting didn't match what the local Indigenous people were saying. And what I found kind of disturbing is the, the way a lot of the stories about these graves were re being reported as though they were facts. I don't like it one bit when the actual persecution, the suffering, the misery that was endured by so many indigenous people, and I mean really horrible criminal abuse, is kind of conflated with all of these, you know, these ghoulish stories about mass graves. And I mean, things are bad enough. You don't have to make stuff up, right? And uh, I don't think we should be conflating the suffering that so many indigenous people endured with these kinds of, um, you know, Da Vinci Code stories. And I was also skeptical because I knew that these stories were floating around from the time of that defrocked minister who was accusing the church and indigenous leaders and prime ministers. So I, right away, I, just, I mean, I'm talking the afternoon, the Friday afternoon, story came out on a Thursday. So for you, was the Times story and other stories like it in a way, kind of like the mainstreaming of a conspiracy theory? Yeah, pretty well. So you start investigating the story. And this past May, about a year after the initial Times mass grave story, you publish your own reporting in the National Post under this headline, The Year of the Graves, How the World's Media Got It Wrong on Residential School Graves. Terry, talk to me about what you found in that year of reporting this story. Oh, boy. Um, yeah, that was quite exciting. I was assigned by the National Post to kind of, everybody was doing it. You know, well, the anniversary's coming up, you know, uh, the, the missing children were the newsmaker of the year and Canadian press voting in Canada. Uh, everybody's doing retrospective, so it fell to me to, you know, what the hell happened? And so I turned in a 5,500-word kind of forensic reconstruction of the way the media covered these stories. And what I found was that basically... 
they weren't true. Uh, we're looking at 1,300 is usually the way it's described as the bodies of 1,300 children were discovered at the sites of long-abandoned Indian residential schools. Never happened. Never happened? No. It didn't happen in Kamloops. Didn't happen at Kawasis. Didn't happen at Shubanakadi. Didn't happen at Penelicut. It was very, very peculiar. I've never really encountered anything quite like this. So to be crystal clear, were any mass graves discovered in Canada in the past year? No. Were any bodies actually unearthed at any of these sites? No. Not that I'm aware of. There may be one, but it was in a cemetery. Um, No bodies, no grave. It's complicated because there were any number of sort of very disparate instances, sometimes no events whatsoever, but stories you could tell, and they were all lumped into this same, you know, 1,300 graves found. Was there anything new about the First Nations residential schools that was revealed in the past year? No. Actually, nothing was added to the public record. Here's you in this article that you wrote in the National Post. Not a single mass grave was discovered in Canada last year. The several sites of unmarked graves that captured international headlines were either already known cemeteries or they remain sites of speculation even now, unverified as genuine grave sites. Not a single child among the 3,201 children on the Truth and Reconciliation Commission's 2015 Registry of Residential School Deaths was located in any of these places. In none of these places were any human remains unearthed. You go on to write this. Nothing new about the schools was revealed last summer. Despite the saturation of news coverage, the international spotlight, and the reopening of old wounds inflicted on so many Indigenous people in these schools over the years, nothing new was added to the public record. Yeah. What was the response to you writing those words in this article? Well, it wasn't pleasant. I mean, I shouldn't complain and make it... I, I didn't want to make this about me, but um, it was it was not pleasant. Uh, the issue of genocide has kind of preoccupied my work quite a bit. So I think it was really wounding when a lot of people were basically saying that Glavin guy is a genocide denier. And the curious thing was I wasn't even writing about residential schools. I was writing about the news media and how we got it wrong, so wrong. And how you couldn't really tell the difference between uh, what you were reading in perfectly reputable news organizations in Canada and elsewhere in the West and reading in RT News, Sputnik, Beijing's Global Times, Tehran's Press TV. It was just this weird pinball machine. And the pinball was this, you know, Indian grave stories that was bouncing around in this strange new ecosystem of uh, digital news. So you've got major institutions and prominent academics calling you a genocide denier. Did anyone come to your defense? Any journalists? I'm not going to mention her name because I don't want to revisit her misery, but one of the more prominent uh, women of color presenters on the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation came out in my defense and said, look, Glavin has done a necessary piece of work and we all have to take notice of how we screwed up this story. And my God, I mean, the reaction that she, that followed that, what she had to put up was just obscene. So, 
you know, a lot of people were saying, well, how come your fellow journalists aren't coming out and making big public noise about this? Well, I don't blame them. And, and you know, they got mortgages to pay and they got kids to feed. And I don't expect that. But what was interesting is how a lot of fairly prominent Indigenous, quite militant academics, intellectuals across the country reached out to me and said, hang in there, hang in there. And I can't count the number of journalists who did that from every single major news organization in this country, basically saying this had to be done uh, and it probably had to be you and you're a good guy and don't don't back down. And, And that was all very, you know, heartening. But were they willing to do it in public or was it only in private? Um, mainly in private, and I and I think that's perfectly understandable because of the kind of reaction that would greet people who did come to my defense publicly. And, and I'm, I'm cool with that. I'm fine with it. After the break, how so many journalists got it so wrong. Stay with us. Let's zoom out a little bit because I want to make sense of how this happened. You have an entire country sort of in a frenzy, believing that the reality that happened to these First Nations children was bad enough. But now they have a sort of hyped up idea that truly nightmarish things occurred that they didn't know about before, that there are these mass graves that are all of a sudden being uncovered. So how do you think it happened? How did this story catch on like wildfire and why? I think the first thing to notice is that, you know, we've lost, I think in Canada, what, two, something like 200 newsrooms in the last 10 years or so. That is a, something that is crippling journalism all over the world. Uh, conventional legacy news organizations are collapsing and they're being replaced by ghost newspapers. The old model is broken, reliance on advertising, the whole idea of journalism as, uh, you know, a place where you can turn for objective reality to be found and people can argue about the implications of that reality. That's basically gone or it's going. And it's occurring in a context that's different, I would say, from previous kind of national reckonings over the residential schools legacy in Canada. It's different in that it's occurring during a moment of a kind of a crisis of epistemology. Hmm. What do you mean by that? Well, people, you know, the problematization of truth. You know, one person's truth, another person's truth. And it's easier to report or to do journalism or what looks like journalism that way. You have one person say something really outrageous and weird and then you have another person saying uh, that person is outrageous and weird, and then you can just sort of walk away from it instead of actually, you know, asking the very first question that a journalist should always ask: Is this true? Is it true? And then, you know, if you can, well, you know, what do you mean by true? There is something very strange and new and different that is occupying all the places where the left used to be, and so these stories. It didn't really matter that they weren't true, but they were weaponized, if you like, in in this narrative about Canada as an irredeemably racist, white, colonial, apartheid settler state. So you have the phenomenon of all of these 
local newspapers closing, journalism transforming, lacking reporters who can actually report. Instead, they're just sort of offering their hot takes on Twitter, right? That's a phenomenon that's going on across this country too. But here you have also a group of politicians who seem like they desperately wanted the story to be true. What is their motivation? Give me the most generous read of their motivation. Well, the mo- I think the most generous read is that they have kind of imbibed, uh, they have drunk the, this well of this quite new notion, actually, it's quite new on the left, that Canada is not, you know, the kind of ridiculous stereotype that you'll see in Michael Moore documentaries where everybody leaves their doors open and we're all really nice and... And it has been kind of silly, in the, and Americans have been a bit silly about Canada for quite a while. You know, well, this is where all the draft dodgers go. It's a place where everybody loves one another. It's multicultural. There's no racism, yada, yada. That's way wrong. <laughs> and I have, I think, done journeyman's work, yeoman's work, in my best to show that that is not true. But you have in its place this kind of, well... You know, the federal government, and particularly Justin Trudeau, you know, will make the case that indigenous people, LGBTQ people, people of color, all need to be protected from this kind of predatory, mean, racist, white majority, and that Canada's history is irredeemably awful. But he's an ally, so he's one of the nice ones. Everything was awful until he came along. So there's that. And there's also something else here, is that when you look at the recommendations of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission about the issue of all of these sort of unmapped and unregistered, forgotten about graves at the sites of residential schools and children who seem to have just sort of gone missing from the record, like where are they? That's a really important and necessary project. And he spent $7 million out of a a promised $38 million over six years in government, six years after the Truth and Reconciliation Commission report came out. They'd basically done nothing. I mean, subsequently, now they're spending $300 million, it's more than $300 million. So for the next few years, you know, Indigenous people are going to be really busy, kind of rummaging, I hate to say this, rummaging around in old cemeteries. Uh, instead of being, you know, like I came up in a generation where a lot of my interlocutors and informants and dear friends were militant indigenous people who were not afraid to shut down logging roads and to say that, look, about a third of this country is still in indigenous title. There have been no treaties. You know, you've got poverty in this country on indigenous reserves. Drinking water is unavailable on dozens and dozens of Indian reserves. You have mercury poisoning still 30 years after it was first exposed. 90% of the people of Grassy Narrows exhibit symptoms of mercury poisoning. You've got tuberculosis among the Inuit people. That is 300 times the national rate of tuberculosis. And instead of talking about that and saying, what, what are you up to? You know, well, let's blame the church. Let's get the Pope over here. Let's talk about a, a 1493 papal bull that might be at the root of all this, and these secret Vatican files that Rome doesn't seem to know anything about. So, you know. Terry, is, is there a generous read, though, where Trudeau and his allies in Parliament genuinely believed it was true? In other words, There are a lot of people who say it's in the New York Times and it's true. 
and they look at the fact that it was published there as evidence of its truth. I think that's the that is a, a, not just a generous read. I think that's a perfectly well deserved and proper and accurate reading of the responses that the overwhelming majority of indigenous and non-indigenous people they were possessed of that understanding. They actually believed this stuff. That's the most generous read I can put on it. Something that you were sort of alluding to before is that for a long time, progressives in Canada have had a pretty positive view of their own country, particularly as kind of a foil to the Yanks, as you keep calling us, which I love. You know, that Canadians are multicultural, they're pacifists, they're environmentally friendly, they're enlightened, they have universal health care, you know, in stark contrast to the gun-toting, warmongering, racist, inequality-ridden America, right? But things seem to be changing on the Canadian left and in the Canadian intellectual class and certainly in the political class, who I now see as sort of mirroring or really just mimicking a lot of the rhetoric from the American left, that Canada is kind of irredeemably racist, that it is, in the case of this story, sort of a murderous settler state. When and why did that shift begin in your country? Well, I blame the Americans. <laughs> it's Fair very enough. much an American phenomenon. This is our big cultural export? Yeah, yeah, I think so. Um, I think it, it, it started around the same time it started happening in the United States. And it kind of spread from the social sciences and humanities departments into the corporate sector and government. And about 20 years ago, Jeremy Stangroom and Ophelia Benson wrote a really interesting book called Why Truth Matters. And then there was Michi Kakatani, she was the book editor of the New York Times, a book called The Death of Truth, and Jonathan Rauch's work, uh, his book, uh, The Constitution of Knowledge, very good book, which describes this kind of problematization of the truth this really took hold in Canada. And what Americans would describe as, you know, kind of wokeism is very much the style and the content of the Trudeau government. And it is pretty weird that it would be the Trudeau government. Because you know what? I mean, can you imagine if Joe Biden, for instance, had been shown to, on at least three occasions, to have gotten drunk and paraded around in blackface. Or try to imagine if Donald Trump had invited the president of the Russian American Business Council to appoint his cabinet after he got elected, oversee the transition, and also saw to it that he got the leading position in the United States Senate, and that he hosted cash for access dinners where all the major Republican donors were invited to meet with Russian oligarchs and billionaires. This is what what Justin Trudeau has done with respect to China. And yet, you know, it, 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 well, yes, but he says all these nice things. And, you know, he spends all this money on anti-racism. Well, Terry, you mentioned sort of this strange phenomenon of a prime minister who's sort of obsessively fixating on any sins in Canada's past and is overlooking the sins being committed right now by the Chinese Communist Party. And the sort of shifting self-image of Canada as bad or born in sin has had profound reverberations around the world. You know, it's especially so it's provided kind of propaganda for hostile regimes to deflect from their own human rights abuses. I'm curious how or if 
sort of Russian and Chinese propagandists exploited this mass grave story to their own benefit? Oh, <laughs> uh, that's exactly what they did. Um, the Chinese made, you know, they had, a, they had a field day with all of these stories about genocide. Within two months of the initial mass grave headlines out of Kamloops, the Chinese Communist Party's various, you know, propaganda sites and news simulacra, according to the Atlantic Council's Digital Forensic Research Lab, had found they'd carried more than 90 stories about this stuff. We were also hauled before the United Nations Human Rights Commission by China in an initiative that was led by China, and it was partnered by Belarus, Russia, Iran, Syria, North Korea, in a condemnation of Canada's treatment of indigenous peoples, and it preempted an initiative that the United Nations uh, was just then beginning to investigate China's trampling of human rights in Xinjiang. Well, yeah, the, Terry, this was the thing that kind of was the darkest of everything. Like you would expect Beijing and Moscow to exploit this story. What you would not expect is that in the Canadian Senate, essentially Beijing-friendly senators would oppose a motion that would declare Beijing's treatment of the Uyghurs as a genocide. And their argument in opposing it, their justification for opposing it, was that Canada had its own lurid history with the residential schools, and therefore didn't have the moral authority to condemn the CCP. Yeah, the who are we to judge argument. Right. Yeah, it's, it's uh, you know, the call is coming from inside the house. It's not just the Chinese representatives at the United Nations Human Rights Council in Geneva. It's more than a couple of senators in Canada's Senate. Terry, what impacts has all of this ultimately had on the Indigenous communities of Canada? Could this false story lead to more denialism of the actual cultural genocide that did in fact take place? I think very much so. This has been a field day for the right wing. You know, there are a couple of, uh, you know, arch, like over the precipice, conservative type kind of news organizations in Canada that have just had a field day with this stuff and have also used it to recruit for something called the People's Party, which is way to the right of the Conservative Party in Canada. And at first they try to sort of, you know, oh, isn't Terry Glavin a great guy? Look what he's done. And, you know, I did my best to say, you know, <laughs> I won't use foul language, but I used foul language. And uh, But a lot of people have, on the left have tried to say, well, Glavin's one of them. And now those the right-wingers are criticizing me for cutting the indigenous communities too much slack and just focusing on the media. Uh, because as I say, you know, Year of the Graves, that 5,500-word piece, was all about the way the media handled it. It didn't challenge any of the fairly, you know, liberal left orthodoxies at all about residential schools in Canada. And maybe I was too easy on a couple of the chiefs, you know, but that wasn't what I was setting out to do. What I was trying to do was saying, look, the truth actually matters. And, you know, can I say, I mean, I'm st I still situate myself on the left. And it's got to the point where, you know, you see, the truth was all we had. We didn't have the banks. We didn't have armies. You know, we had the truth. And um, it, I find it very curious that this, this phenomenon that occupies all the places where the left was 
it also takes in all the major banks, all the big insurance companies, the big airline companies, the Canadian government, the establishment. It's an establishment uh, way of looking at the world. It's very useful. I hate to be too much of a Marxist about this, but it is very useful to what we used to call the ruling class. Um, Why is it useful? Because it keeps people at one another's throats. Because it says to you, you have nothing to be proud of. This country, this, you know, it's all, uh, you know, a horrible story of racism and, and bigotry. Uh, and we're the nice ones. And we're going to change everything. Terry, since you wrote that story in the National Post, have any of the original articles been retracted? Have they been corrected? And has anyone apologized for getting it wrong? No, definitely not. And I, the New York Times has all of those original stories still on its website. I will say uh, the Globe and Mail, which is, uh, you know, the old grey lady, as it's known, a reputable Canadian daily, Somebody who works at the Globe sent me an internal, uh, fairly sternly worded addition to their style guide after my piece came out about how how this whole story is going to be covered from now on. You know, you're never going to use the term mass grave, thank you very much. It was, it was really good to see that. But no, you know, you, you can't question the narrative without running into a lot of trouble. I was to be interviewed by this very hostile interviewer, we'll put it that way. Uh, and the chairman of the board of the Canada Council for the Arts publicly told him he shouldn't be speaking with me. You know, he should have nothing to do with me. If I was going to go on the program, I, sh I should have some indigenous person box my ears. Uh, and the Canada Council for the Arts is important in Canada. You don't get a book published by any reputable book publisher in this country without subsidies from the Canada Council for the Arts. Most of my books have been, uh, you know, publishers have had Canada Council grants to do that. I've served on Canada Council juries. I was shortlisted for a Governor General's Medal by the Canada Council for a book that I wrote. I'll never serve on another Canada Council jury. I'll never write a book for, for, for a publisher that's any way, in any way connected. Terry, when you wrote that story, I imagine you knew there would be a backlash to it. And I imagine you knew, having watched other people touch untouchable subjects, that you might lose opportunities in the future, as you're explaining to me now that you know you are. Do you regret doing the story? Not, not in the slightest. I'm going to be okay, right? I mean, I'm fine. I'm talking to Barry Weiss right now. What the hell, right? What I worry about, you know, is that the truth doesn't matter. And I think this is something that has changed from 20 years ago is that it's not just that the truth doesn't matter anymore. It's that it doesn't matter that the truth doesn't matter anymore. That's the thing that I, that concerns me. And it, it's, it's, it's pretty distressing. But I also think that people really do want some kind of an honest assessment of things that are important, of something grounded in fact. I think that that is something that is actually necessary for a liberal democracy to function. The thing we always tell our kids, right, is that the truth will out. At the end of the day, the truth will always carry the day. And I wonder, given your experience, not just on this story, but given the kind of work you've done over the course of your career and the way that journalism is changing, if you still believe that. Oh... I want to. 
And I have to be careful of that. I want to. I want to believe. I want to believe it. And I also don't like using the word believe. I want to think about what I know. And uh, I think we have to make a very important distinction between belief and knowledge. And this is something that I think is lost these days, particularly in the news media. There's, there's actually a difference between, and we should be, we should draw attention to it when it's transgressed. That there is what we know, and then there is what we're expected to believe or told to believe. Will the truth out? I think that uh, that desire among people who end up being journalists to find out things and to be curious about the world and to tell stories, to you know, tell people things they didn't know. I mean, it's exciting. And to spin a good yarn and not tell a lie while you're doing it. I think that will persist. And I think it will. there will always be a significant number of people out there, just ordinary people, you know, they're trying to catch the bus in the morning, who want to know what's actually going on and uh, are, are skeptical about things that they're being hectored to believe. And so, yeah, I guess I must be a bit of an optimist still. Terry Glavin, thank you for coming on and especially thank you for your excellent old school journalism. We really appreciate it. Well, thank you for the same. <laughs> Thanks, Barry. Thanks for listening. Terry and I spoke a lot today about how it is that reporters at major legacy publications, like the New York Times, the Washington Post, the Guardian, countless others, how they got this story totally wrong. Dozens of journalists somehow have failed to do the basic job of journalism which is to verify the facts before you publish them. Over at Common Sense, our newsletter, we pride ourselves on doing journalism that is trustworthy, even if it means upsetting the sensibilities of our readers. We can't promise that we'll never make mistakes. What we can promise you is transparency, honesty, and integrity, including admitting when we've made a mistake and issuing a correction. So if you like this episode and you are hungry, to find a new home for trustworthy news coverage, head to commonsense.news today and subscribe. If you want to contribute to the future of media and you believe that we need trustworthy media, consider a paid subscription. Once again, that's commonsense.news. See you next time.